Please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King. My name is Peter Schwand. I serve as a priest here at CTK. You are likely familiar with Mr. Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Whether you grew up watching it on TV or watching it alongside your children or have seen it in syndication. Mr. Rogers passed away in 2003 and in what became his last recorded interview, he told a story which underscored the essential foundation of much of his show and really his ministry. It was a story about the writer Henry James. And in this story, he tells about Henry James's nephew who came to his uncle just as he was about to go off to boarding school for the first time. And he asked his wise uncle, do you have any advice for me? Henry James answered, I have three pieces of advice. Isn't that usually the case? You ask for advice and you get more than you bargained for. I have three pieces of advice. The first is to be kind. The second is to be kind. The third is to be kind. Now, it's, that might seem like, you know, the, the real estate type of advice. Location, location, location. But I think it's a good underscoring of the essential of kindness that was the hallmark for Mr. Rogers and his neighborhood. Now, as Christians, we too operate on a foundation of essentials. And the season of Easter, which is a, a 50-day celebration, is when we celebrate those essentials. If, uh, if you're wondering why I keep wearing this over the next seven weeks, it's because Easter is indeed 50 days long, and if I can wear a fancy stole for the next seven weeks, I will. The essentials of our faith. Christ's death, memorialized in our Eucharist, the meal that we celebrate as a sacrament together. Christ's resurrection and his promised return, which we proclaim in this season and actually every Sunday in the Creed. And in our communion liturgy, we proclaim a succinct statement of the essentials of our faith. If you're looking closely, it's called the mystery of faith. Or if you come from another church tradition, you may know it as the memorial acclamation. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Over the next three weeks, we will take a look at these three short statements, one each week. And today, we'll take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul gives an overview of this gospel truth. So the sermon leaflet has some notes on the inside of the back page. And if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible, it's page 903. Here's how Paul begins the 15th chapter in the first verse. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. He's reminding them of things that they already know. They are things, he says in verse 3, that are of first importance. These are the essentials of the gospel that Paul has already told them of that he wants to remind them of. There is a word that you may be familiar with, Catholicity which oftentimes when Christians use it, it refers not to the, the Catholic Church necessarily, but to those things which most Christians for most of time have believed. It refers to the essentials, which Paul is addressing. And he addresses three questions which we'll turn to this morning. What is the gospel? Why might we consider it a mystery? 
And what, therefore, is our hope? So first, what is the gospel? If you look at the first verse, now I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you. For Greek students, this is kind of a nerdy, fun moment because the verb translated preached is the same root word as gospel. So it's the gospel I gospeled to you. The good news I good news to you. The announcement I announced to you. He does that to underscore that this, this is the essential message. And it's wonderfully simple. Now the gospel in its full proclamation is certainly more complex than what Paul lists here. It includes the restoration and redemption of the whole cosmos, of all of creation, where every tear is wiped away, where oppression and injustice are no more. It is certainly all that, but it is no less than the simple statement that Paul makes in verse 3, 4, and 5, what we proclaim as the mystery of faith. We see in verse 3, Christ died for sins, in verse 4, that he was buried and that he was raised. And in verse 5 and on, that he revealed himself and he will again. This is the gospel. Now, I know from my architectural training what the most important part of any building is. It's something usually unseen. It is certainly not the flashiest, although it does have flashing around it, ironically. Uh, and it is... It is something which, for many designers, actually remains hidden if it's doing its job. It is the foundation. Without a strong foundation, a building is susceptible to the cracks and shifts of the ground that might imperil the whole building. When I was 12 or 13 years old, uh, growing up in Maine, where the beach means something quite different to those of you from further south, my parents decided to put in an in-ground pool. For a 13-year-old about to head into high school, this was great news, not just because swimming in a pool is fun, but it meant for me that our house might become party central for my high school years. My parents, of course, thought that it meant that me and my friends would be under their watchful eye at least for the next four years. As they were installing the pool, the concrete cut truck came. Pool, it poured the uh, sidewalks around the pool, and it started to pour the foundation. They're about three quarters of the way through, and I know this not because I witnessed it, which I did, but also because my mother recorded it in the family camcorder, and it is forever trapped on a VHS tape. Three quarters of the way through pouring the concrete, they stopped. The cruelest of jokes for a teenager, with images of parties dancing in my mind. They started ripping out the concrete. Apparently, the humidity for the day was not what they expected. It had caused cracked and fissures already to appear in the concrete. And if they didn't tear it out and start over with a firm foundation, the pool eventually, from the weight of the water and the tension, would have imploded upon itself. The party would have been over, whether I liked it or not. The foundation matters. The gospel essentials matter. Our second question, what is the mystery? Now, Paul uses this word mystery in a number of different contexts in his letters. He uses a couple of words to describe it. 
And in some places, he describes something which we as Christians would affirm, that being that God and his ways and his plans are not fully knowable by us. He also uses the word mystery to refer to God's graciousness to include the Gentiles and indeed all ethnicities in his plan of salvation. And here we see that there's also a use of the word mystery to refer to things which were once hidden, which at one time we did not know. Look down at our text towards verse 3 and 4. Christ died for sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Scripture and the witness of the prophets pointed towards these events, that a savior, a Messiah would come, that a suffering servant would come who would bear the iniquity, the sin of the people. So the mystery has been revealed first in scripture. And secondly, it's been revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus claimed that these prophetic witnesses pointed to him. He himself declared that he would die and on the third day rise. And these things really happened. Turn to our our gospel reading from Mark 16, and I think some of the details can prove to us that these things really happened. There's, There's three things that stick out to me. The first, these women got up very early. You don't get up very early in the morning with no reason. I know this because my six-month-old Charlie got up at 4.45 this morning. They get up early. And secondly, look what they bring to the tomb. Spices. Now, a casual walk down the spice aisle at your grocery store tells you that this is, pound for pound, the most expensive thing that you could buy in the grocery store. I had to go to the grocery store on Friday because we needed rosemary for a recipe. It's like the only time I ever follow a recipe and it calls for something I don't have. Thankfully, as I walked to the grocery store, I passed my neighbor's house and she said, oh, I've got rosemary growing in the garden. Go snip some. I think I probably saved $20. Spices are expensive. These women had invested and bought spices and were coming at an early hour and they were coming to a tomb because Jesus really died. He was crucified. And so these things are no longer a mystery because they've been revealed in scripture and they've been revealed to us in what happened that's recorded in the gospels. Look down at verse five and following and there's a word that appears several times. He appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared also to me. The Greek word here is one uh, which, it's the same root as as optometry, referring to sight. But here, the form of the verb tells us that someone was made to see. So it's not saying it's as if you or I opened our eyes and we saw what was there all along. It's as if someone opened our eyes for us and revealed themselves to us. What was once a mystery has now been revealed. And in case anyone has any doubts, Paul says, oh, by the way, there's 500 witnesses. They're nearly all alive. Go and ask them. This 
is the record of the witnesses that has been passed down from Paul to the next generation and on down to us. That what was once a mystery has now been revealed. But what is the hope for us? I think that this passage assures us that the cross makes it clear that a few things are true. First, that Jesus forgives our sin. Look in verse 3, we see that Christ died for our sins. He uses a plural verb there. He's writing to the church, but he doesn't say Christ died for your sins. He's including himself, and the use of that verb even invokes that he died for our sins, for your sin, for my sin, for the sin of y'all. Whatever the most plural form of the word he could use is, that's what he means. Our gospel hymn, which we just sung, includes these words. This, the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath, we stand forgiven at the cross. What a love, what a cost, we stand forgiven at the cross. This is our first assurance from Jesus' work on the cross. It's the assurance of pardon, is what our liturgy would call it. It's the assurance that Jesus has atoned for our sin. He's paid for the wages of our sin. And it's why in our liturgy, after we confess our sin, the priest will declare that God in his mercy will pardon and deliver you from all sin if you sincerely repent and in true faith turn to him. So first we're assured that Jesus forgives our sin. Secondly, Jesus identifies with us in suffering at the cross. I don't know the, the particulars of, of your week, and certainly I know some of the hardships that we as a, a parish have faced in the last year, but it's likely that you've undergone some type of suffering or loss. And so the hope for us is that wherever you are experiencing suffering, know that you have a God who suffers with you and suffered for you, where you're feeling guilty, you have a God who assures you of forgiveness. Where you're feeling anxious, you have a God who desires to give you his peace. And he proves this by assuring us at the cross, and we'll speak more of this next week, that he has power and victory over death. The last thing that I think we are assured of at the cross is that God is full of grace. Look back at verse 2. Paul writes of the gospel that this is by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. In other words, we hold fast to that which is saving us, that which is Jesus. But Paul, we see in verse 9, may have had a little bit of trouble believing that that was true. We see in verse 9 that he felt unworthy he felt like his past action maybe eliminated him from being qualified to receive this grace. But he says, by God's grace, verse 10, but by the grace of God, he was saved. By God's grace, we are being saved. Now, when he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, 
It's not as if he's saying, this isn't some you know, bumper sticker slogan of, of you do you and I'll do me. It isn't Paul saying, I am what I am, a sinner, I'm just going to keep on sinning. No, he's saying quite the opposite. He's saying, I was and I am a sinner, but if now you see anything good in what I am, it's because of the one throughout the Old Testament scriptures called himself the great I am. It's by God's grace, not by Paul's work. And the same is true for us. And so we have hope in God's grace. Now, as we close, I want to turn to two practical implications. And Paul actually says that there are two things that if we don't embrace these two things, then we are without hope. We're, we're empty. Our, our faith is in vain. He says that we need to believe and receive, both of which are fairly passive verbs. I say implications because these are things for us to consider and to accept, not things for us to add to our to-do list and to do. I'm not telling you to go out the doors of the church on Sunday and feel burdened that you need to do these things. I want you to go out the back doors of the church and to know and to feel and be assured that God is for you and he forgives you and he offers life. Let's look at belief. Paul writes in verse 2 that if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain, this is how you'll be saved. So if you haven't accepted these truths, this gospel truth before, consider what this might mean for you. Consider believing this this morning. Consider standing in this incredible reality of grace that Paul says we should stand in. Now, belief doesn't mean that you don't have questions or doubts. Belief isn't just intellectual assent or something you, you think in your, your head is true. It's not just an emotional response that you feel in your heart. It's something which requires a trust with all of your life. And it's something that ultimately you need to do for yourself. Your belief in your faith doesn't, doesn't depend on your parents or your grandparents. It doesn't depend, perhaps in the other direction, on your children. It's a decision for yourself. See, these, these events that Paul records were public events that they were witnesses to, but they were public events that had a personal implication. So first, belief. Secondly, receive. I preached a sermon a few years ago, and this is probably the, the height of arrogance that a preacher references his own sermon from the pulpit. Don't worry, there's a reason I share it. A few years ago, I was preaching, and I had a simple illustration about how we must not only come to God once and believe and receive, but we should actually continue to return to God. That our dependence means that we continually come to him and receive. And I gave the following illustration. I said, imagine going to pick up your season tickets to the Kennedy Center, and this was the year, in fact, this was just a couple weeks before Hamilton was going to be playing on the main stage. So I said, imagine going to the Kennedy Center where you've purchased your season tickets, you go to pick them up at the box office, but you don't even show up for the show. 
I think you can agree with me, just the, the silence tells me it wasn't a very good illustration, right? Now, a few weeks later, before it hit the main stage, a family from the church gave Mimi and I a gift, two tickets to see Hamilton. I guess, I guess the illustration worked, but the point is that we were given a gift that we had done nothing to deserve that gift. We weren't worthy of it. We were, we were, frankly, we were parents of a newborn who hadn't gotten a lot of sleep, let alone had a date night or a night out. And this was a blessing of generosity, and all we could do was say thank you and to receive it. But imagine that instead of receiving that, we'd just taken the tickets and not shown up. We had missed our shot. We hadn't actually gone to see the performance. We wouldn't have actually received and enjoyed the gift. Or imagine we had said, ah, oh, you know, that's, that's really nice. Why don't you just offer it? That seems like something somebody else would enjoy. Or imagine we had said, you know what? It's a nice gift, but uh, I'll think about that in a few years. In fact, I'm pretty sure I'll have another opportunity in three years. Disney Plus will probably release a, a streaming version of the recording from New York. I'm sure that'll be just as good. The point is simple. Receive the gift with joy and enjoy what it is that God offers. Paul reminds us in this passage that we haven't been saved based on our status. It's not, as he writes, based on his hard work. It's not based on our hard work or what we've earned. It's a gift. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the gospel which Paul received. It's the gospel that Paul preached to the Corinthians and that they received. And it's the gospel which we now receive. Thanks be to God that this is the message which not only do we receive, but that we can now profess to be true.